You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We are your hosts, Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman. If you are a productivity nerd like Lindsay and I, you are about to be in for a treat with today's episode. We have the honor of talking to one of our favorite authors today, a man who has transformed our views on productivity and technology, Cal Newport. Cal is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, where he specializes in the theory of distributed systems, as well as a New York Times bestselling author who writes for a broader audience about the intersection of technology and culture. He is the author of seven books, including Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, which have been published in over 30 languages. He is also a regular contributor on these topics to national publications such as The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Wired, and is a frequent guest on NPR. So basically, Cal's a genius, and we are so, so excited to have today's conversation with him. In today's episode, we dive into the topic of Cal's latest book, A World Without Email. You're going to get a nice kick in the pants today on how you're spending your time with the tech in your business, or rather, how you're likely wasting a lot of it, and how to change that. We talk about how you might be feeling quote-unquote productive by checking email every six minutes during a workday, but how that is actually destroying your productivity. Cal breaks down what he calls the hyperactive hive mind workflow and how it's detrimental to the bottom line in your business. He gives you tangible tools, steps, and examples for you to take home and begin to implement. So if you are the person who spends their entire workday bouncing from emails to social media to Slack channels back to email to constantly checking and responding to people to trying to do all the other stuff too, Cal is about to blow your mind. Get ready to stop wasting your time with needless emails and other tech distractions and actually move the needle in your business. Now, let's bring Cal onto the show. You're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast with Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman, two photographers turned entrepreneurs and founders of the Heart University. If you're a creative entrepreneur or a motivated dreamer wanting to make the most of your life, this podcast is for you. Each week, Evie and Lindsay bring you actionable tools to uplevel your business and life. So if you're ready to step up to the plate and pursue your God-given potential, you're in the right place. You're ready to live your life and run your business to its fullest? Then buckle up, because here are your hosts, Evie and Lindsay. All right, Cal, we are beyond excited to welcome you to the Heart and Hustle podcast, so welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We are beyond looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Your book, Deep Work, has impacted, honestly, both of us and changed how we do business. And now your book, A World Without Email, just released, and we're pretty stoked to dive into that just conversation about all of that, about how technology and workflow can either clash or coincide peacefully. And just, I guess, before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Well, you know, my day job is I'm a computer science professor, so I study technology from an academic perspective, but I also write about the impact of this tech on culture and on our lives. I've actually been writing longer than I was an academic. I started writing books uh, as an undergraduate. It's actually when I, I signed my first book deal. So I've been writing books wow. my entire adult life. Um, but it really was deep work, which came out in 2016, where I pivoted really towards trying to understand some of these unintentional consequences of tech on our life and on our work and how to make sense of them. So there's really a trio in that direction. Uh, Deep work, which is really talking about tech in the workplace. Digital minimalism, which is about tech in our personal life, so looking at our phones too much, social media, these issues. And then the new book, A World Without Email, which goes back to looking at the world of work uh, Mm -hmm. and tech in the world of work. So those three books are all in that space, and I cover both tech in our personal life and tech in our professional lives. I love that. (laughs) I'm trying not to nerd out, Cal, because I truly love your books. And I'm like, okay, contain it. Don't don't be like, oh, please (laughs) tell us more. (laughs) So I'm trying to, you know, tone it down for today's interview. I love that, Cal. And I think just especially in what we do as entrepreneurs and especially our audience that listens to this show, I think that's such a dilemma, especially more talking about, I mean, it also is personal. It's both because I think as creative entrepreneurs, your phone and your computer is so much of your business, but then also like, people are on their phones and computers for fun, like watching Netflix or scrolling social media. And there's just such a a dichotomy between those two of like, how can we, 
I'm just so excited for this conversation, first of all, but like, how can we really balance those two and have a healthy work life and then also a healthy personal life? Um, so I, I can't wait. Evie, I'm sure you have so many thoughts too. <laughs> yeah. I think, Cal, I would love to hear maybe a little bit from you on like, what got you, obviously you are in like tech from an academic standpoint. So is that what piqued your interest in observing technology in people's lives today? And kind of did that pivot you into productivity? Or or I'm just curious of what got you into kind of what you've written about so much and what you know so much about. Like what was that initial spark? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because uh, I would say probably it's not the academics that brought me to the topic so much as it flavored how I approached the topic. But if we really want to unwind the story, uh, my very first books I wrote as a student, uh, and they're aimed at students, and they were about how to be more successful as a student. So the you know the first book I wrote I wrote in college. The second book came out right after I started grad school, and the third one a couple of years into grad school. And they were basically advice guides for students. And the reason why I wrote those is that when I had been in high school in the late 1990s, which was the first dot com boom, I had a company. I was running a, a web development consulting firm because back then you could do that type of thing because, you know, that was back when tech was new and everyone assumed if you were young, you must know something. <laughs> uh, by the way, that bubble burst pretty spectacularly. So it shows how much they yeah. know. Um, but I was reading business books as a teenager. So I was used to business books and business advice books. I got to college. Said, okay, I'm spending a lot of money to be here, taking on a lot of loans. Uh, how do I do this well? And there wasn't good advice guides for college students. Most of them were trying to be kooky or fun. And there was this mm. idea in the world of New York publishing that uh, kids wouldn't take the book serious. You know, if the book was too serious, kids would say it's not cool and they want to read it. Now, look, I was a student. I said, no, that's nonsense. You got this completely wrong. College students take themselves too seriously, right? Yeah. You don't want to put the motivational speaker in a weird pose on your cover. You want to treat the kids like they're smarter than they actually are. So I had this idea, why don't we write college advice books like business books? Just no nonsense. Like, let's go talk to, my first book on, really was just, let's talk to Rhodes Scholars and ask them about their mm -hmm. habits. And okay, here's what the, the very best students in the world, you know, here's how they take notes and uh, here's how they study for tests. So I, I was brought into this world of formal thinking about productivity because I was writing those student guides, which I thought, should exist. To get yeah. me to tech, what happened was there's a, there's a uh, we think of this as like a connector book. And in 2012, I wrote this as a postdoc. It came out just as I started as a professor. I wrote a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which was about careers. And I was mm -hmm. trying to understand how do people end up passionate about their work. And I took on this follow your passion advice as being way too simplistic. And one of the ideas that came out of that book was getting really good at something rare and valuable is often the foundation of building a job that's really cool and that you're really passionate about. And so there's this follow-up question of, well, how do I get really good at something rare and valuable? And so I was writing this book, Deep Work. Well, you want to be able to, you need to focus on the same thing over time. You need to work on things without distraction. That's what threw me into the world of tech because, hey, what was stopping us from doing that? Technologies. Yeah. And it was after Deep Work came out and it really, it was an underground hit, you know, it wasn't a big release, but it just sort of gained some traction. When I realized the technology piece of the story was really interesting, I began to look around and said, hey, wait a second, I'm a technology academic. I'm surrounded by really smart people who work on the philosophy of technology. Uh, and, and then that's when I realized that's where I wanted to turn my attention. So it was more like my academic position helped shape how I wrote about technology once I started to do it. But how I got there was way more, way more serendipitous and unexpected. Mm -hmm. Cal, I love that. And I think that leads us perfectly into kind of focusing on the book that you just released that came out, A World Without Email. Could you kind of just for our listeners who don't know what that's about, could you explain the goal of what you're trying to accomplish for readers when they read that book? Yeah, you know, I set out trying to understand why do we check inboxes once every six minutes? Like who thought this was a good idea? Mm -hmm. What's the negative impact of it? What's the positive impact of it? Why do we work this way? Should we work this way? I mean, it, to me, it was such a such a profound change that had happened in what it meant to work, which used to be a very sequential thing. I'm working on this. Now I'm done. I'm going to call someone. Now I'm done. Now I'm going to go to lunch and have two martinis. Now I'm done with that. Now I'm going to do this. <laughs> and it became yeah. this frenzied improvisational every six minutes checking inbox, Slack, email, social mm -hmm. media, constantly communicating with people all the time. That felt like a very profound shift that really we just took for granted of, oh, I guess that's what work is in a modern world. I want to understand why we started working that way, whether it's a good idea that we're working that way, and if it's not a good idea, what should we do instead? 
Mm, that's so good. Okay, so then you talk about the hyperactive, like, hive mind workflow. So is that what you're talking with the frenzied, like, you're sitting at lunch and you're checking your email and you're seeing your Slack go off and you're you're replying to that and all of that. Would you be willing to, like, explain a little bit to our listeners of kind of even more of what that is and why it's so detrimental to our true productivity or work, or if it's not, how we can manage it well? Yeah, it's so critical to understanding our current moment. So if you actually go back and do the excavation on the history of tools like email, here's what you see. You see in the early 1990s, email takes off and it begins to spread through offices all around the world. And for a very rational and pragmatic reason, it was a better version of existing communication tools that people were using in the office. So it was a better version of the fax machine, a better version of voicemail, and a better version of those memos that we used to send around in folders. You'd use the red thread ties to try to to keep them shut, and they put them in a mail cart, and they'd move them around (laughs) through the office. It was clearly better. It was clearly Mm -hmm. better than all three of those things. So it spread very quickly. Uh, I go through this history in the book, but it's a niche market in the late 80s. It's a half-billion-dollar-year market by 1995. Makes complete sense that it would spread. In its wake, however, as it moved through these offices, you know, replacing fax machines, replacing memos, it brought with it a new way of coordination and collaboration that I call the hyperactive hive mind, where people said, huh, if I have low friction digital messaging available, you know, maybe the easiest way to collaborate with the people I work with and my clients and my vendors, everyone is just with ad hoc back and forth unscheduled messaging. Sort of, hey, what about this? Can you grab this? Can you come over? When can you meet? You want to do it now? How about then? Have you looked at this? What should we do about this? That came in the wake of email spread, and I call it the hyperactive hive mind workflow. It's very natural because it's how we naturally communicate with each other if we're just in the same room, right? I mean, if there's just two of us here in the same room working on something, it's ad hoc on, you know, unscheduled, just back and forth mm-hmm. communication. Hey, hand me that, you know, spear. I'm going to throw it at the saber-toothed tiger. Like, that's just how we would naturally communicate. It was also easy yeah. and flexible and convenient. The problem is, when you're communicating with a lot of people this way, you now have a ton of these ongoing conversations happening. I think of it like a bunch of metaphorical ping pong tables and you're hitting these digital message balls across the net and they're getting hit back mm-hmm. and you have to come back to the nets to hit them back again and you have 20 or 30 of these conversations going on at a time. This necessitates that you have to check those channels all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things going on back and forth, unscheduled ad hoc. You have to keep checking because some of these things will be the ball has come back, you got to hit it back. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to constantly check these channels because this way of communicating is very natural if there's two of us, but it doesn't scale very well when there's 30 of us because what we get then is 126 email checks a day. We get checking our email once every six minutes. We get no more than 76 minutes total in a given standard workday in which you've gone at least five minutes without being near an inbox check, oh right? My gosh. I mean, it's all we do. That's the problem with the hyperactive hive mind. If we do all of our coordination this way, it's too much. And then all we do mm-hmm. is check these channels. Now, why is that a problem? Is because context switching is cognitive poison. We cannot quickly change our mental context to what's going on in that inbox and then change it back to the thing we're working on without consequence. That actually yeah, creates yeah. a huge neurochemical cascade that normally would take 10 or 15 minutes to actually complete. We initiate mm-hmm. it as we glance at our inbox every six minutes, then wrench it back to what we were working on before. These changes mm-hmm. collapse into each other. Uh, we get exhausted and our ability to think clearly goes down. We also get anxious. We also get fatigued. So we have accidentally created this way of working that is terrible for our brains. And so it's a a long answer to a short question, but it's the foundation of the whole book is that this hyperactive hive mind followed email, changed the way we work, felt very natural, but it's destroying our brains. That's so good. Well, and that kind of relates a little bit to your book, Deep Work, which is focusing on why it is so detrimental to like bounce back and forth. And you need those like periods of time where it is just uninterrupted periods of deep work. Um, And I guess my question is, to people that think that their work, I'm using air quotes for people that can't see me, which is everyone, because this is a podcast. um, (laughs) What would you say to people that that assume that like answering their emails is just like a part of their daily work, like, and they, they don't view that as unproductive necessarily? Like, what would you say to them? Well, this is why it's so important to have a name for this workflow, right? So yes, if you use the hyperactive hive mind workflow to collaborate, right? Uh, Then you have to check your emails. That's how things actually get done. It's why if you, your company, your organization uses the hyperactive hive mind, just trying to fix this problem by saying, I'm going to check my email less or have better norms, or I'm going to turn off my notifications. This fails because the emails aren't superfluous. This is the main way that you're actually organizing. You have to keep checking. And if you don't check, 
and you don't respond to these digital ping pong balls, bad things happen. That's why we fail time and again to try to fix email overload just in the inbox. The problem, however, is that this way of collaborating is going to cause long-term a lot of problems because of all this context shifting. Mm-hmm. So if you if you say, well, how can I check my email less if I use the hyperactive hive mind? The answer is you can't. And if someone says, I have to check my email all the time because I use the hyperactive hive mind, I say, of course you do. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. But the bigger question is, is that the right way to work? Right. And I think there the answer is no. We have to actually replace the hive mind with alternatives. And that's what I'll keep coming back to. The solution here has nothing to do with your inbox habits. It's about mm-hmm. actually replacing the hive mind with thing after thing, process after process that you're regularly involved in in your business or in your work, process by process, figuring out ways to do that that doesn't require just unscheduled back and forth messaging. So we need to actually reduce the pressure in the inbox itself so that we don't we feel very little compulsion to need to check it all the time. That's mm-hmm. going to be the answer. But until we make those lower down changes, I'm 100% on board you got to keep checking as long as the hive mind is going to reign supreme in the way that you collaborate. Yeah, I love that. Okay, Cal, before we dive into kind of some tangible, here's how, you know, here's other workflows that you can replace with, or here's tangible steps that you can take to, you know, get out of that, like, hive mind workflow— Can you maybe talk to us a little bit? Have you noticed, you might cover this in the book. I actually haven't read it yet. So I'm really excited to like talk to you first and then dive into the book. Um, Can you talk to us about, does the hyperactive like hive mind workflow tend to create a, a company environment, a workflow environment, a creativity environment where people aren't able to create as well or think uh, independently or think, you know, problem solve on their own pretty much because their initial response to a problem, a question, a situation is to just fire off a question mark to, you know, another coworker or or team member and not to actually sit and try to solve the problem themselves. Have you is that like a a thing that's also coming out of this type of workflow? I think for sure that's true. In fact, I can give you an example that I do talk about in the book. It was a really interesting experiment that was done with a large East Coast company that does research and development type of stuff. So they run experiments, et cetera. Uh, so they did this, this experiment. This was Gloria Mark from University of California, Irvine, and some others, where they actually came in and said, we're going to take a dozen people and we're going to take them off email for a week. And we're just going to see what happens. <laughs> you know, So it's like, we're not going to really, wow. like, we're not going to make plans. We're not going to let them set things up in advance. Let's just, if we really want to understand the role of email let's see what goes wrong when it's gone, which is kind of a clever experiment. So uh, Gloria was telling me about, it's not in the paper, but she was telling me about one of the experimental subjects. Now, this was someone who had to set up a lab on a regular basis, which took hours and was a pain, right? And he was always complaining because his boss would get him with these emails. He'd be trying to set up the lab and be email for email, real urgent. Like, what, what about this? I need an answer about this. What's going on with this? Can you do this real quick? And there's this real sense of like, you got to answer this stuff. It's really important. I need you on this. And, and the guy was really frustrated, right? Because he said, I'm trying to set up the lab and I have to keep checking this and, and it, it distracts me. Anyways, that guy was one of the 12 people who was selected not to be on email. And what happened during that week is that his boss started to stop bothering him. So he'd set up the lab, wouldn't be bothered. Why this was interesting is that his boss's office was two doors down from where he was setting up the lab. So just that little extra friction of, oh, I'd have to walk down the hallway seven feet and lean in the door and be like, hey, can you get me this answer? Help me with this thing. was enough to basically make all of those requests that had been just bedeviling this guy, made them all go away. Uh, Because there's this weird thing that happens when you get rid of all of the, engineers know this well, but when you get rid of all the friction and go down to zero friction, systems go out of control. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit of friction, systems can regulate themselves much, much better. So that boss is thinking like, I don't really want to walk down the hall and there's going to be a social capital cost. I have to look this guy in the eyes and interrupt them. And I guess this is not that important. Or I guess I can just do this, right? I mean, a little bit of friction, the system worked pretty well. Email has no friction. All I had to do was like, boom, boom, it's out of mm-hmm. my mind. And right. was completely, so scale that up to just millions of interactions all around the, the world yeah. of knowledge work. And I think you're absolutely right. If we can just grab anyone at any time in the hive mind, yeah. we do that way more than is probably actually optimal or needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed it in my, uh, my own work and my own companies and like who I'm working with and employees. Uh, you know, my executive assistant is 
insanely talented at what she does. She's so good. And she always has an answer to stuff and always knows stuff. And so it's very easy for me sometimes when I'm working to fire off a question to Rachel and be like, hey, can you get me this? Or like, hey, can you pull this from my inbox or something? And there've been multiple times in the last year as I've been trying to get better at this, realizing I don't need to be distracting her from what she's doing. I have that answer. It will take me two seconds to go get that answer myself instead of asking her. Um, And I've noticed it as well with other employees asking questions where I'm like, you could find that answer in two minutes and it took you, you know, 30, 45 seconds to send off this message to me. It's not that much longer for you to find that problem, solve it yourself, figure it out on your own. So I've noticed it on like, obviously a small scale within my own companies. And I would not doubt that it's impacting the problem solving creativity, you know, the independence that can create so much good in companies and in people's careers and in, in you know, innovation in the workforce. Yeah. Well, let me just speak to that real quick because I think it's something I talk about in the book is there's different types of jobs, but for all of these jobs that I cover, being able to work on things one at a time until you're at a stopping point before moving on to the next without distraction in between is much more effective. And it's, it's true whether you're, you know, writing a novel, some like classical idea of deep work, or if you're an executive assistant. And I talk about assistants uh, in the book, um, it's convenient in the moment like you're talking about. Like, well, if I could just get this off right now, it's off my brain. I don't have to worry about it. Get a quick, and we want a quick answer in those situations usually, not because it's necessary uh, for the thing to get done, but because we don't want to keep track of it in our head. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of times we want accessibility because we just don't know if it's going to get done. And once I hear back, okay, I got it. You're like, great, I can forget about it. But yeah. imagine a counterfactual. This is just like a one thing you could do, but imagine a counterfactual where you're like, there's twice during the day where we have this 20-minute check-in with the assistant. The assistant builds things up in a shared document, and I keep track of things wherever, and then we kind of get together. And I'm like, all right, here's the things that I, I, I want you to, to put on your plate. Let me explain them to you while we're talking on the phone. There's going to be this, there's going to be this, there's going to be this, there's going to be this. She's like, all right, I got it. Uh, let's walk through what I've put in your shared document up to now. We need an answer on this and this. What about this? And you have this sort of collaboration, and then you don't communicate again for four hours. During that time, the assistant now has their, you know, here's a bunch of things you need to get done. Let me think about the right way to do these and do them one by one without having to be servicing an inbox the whole time. Even in that situation, it makes a big difference. And where that has happened in support roles already is IT. And IT support, they figured out a little Mm. while ago, we can't actually fix anyone's computers if everyone could just call us all the time and be like, hey, my thing's broken. Uh, Help me with this. What's going on with that? So they invented these ticketing systems that allowed IT support to work on one thing at a time. Your request goes into a ticketing system. You get a number. You automatically get updated on your status. When it changes, the IT professionals then log into the system, find the ticket most relevant to them, work on it till they're done, update the ticket. That sends the person an update, and then they move on what's next. There's almost no actual direct back and forth between the IT professionals and the people they're talking to throughout the day, um, but it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really great example because regardless of the position, being able to get away from the hive mind actually is going to make that position much better uh, executed. Yeah. I feel like to what you both are saying, it's like we have our personal to-do list. And like, Evie, you like, I mean, I do this too. Like sending off a thing to Rachel is like, mm-hmm. oh, it's checking it off our to-do list very quickly. But it's almost, I, f- I feel like the hyperactive hive mind feeds into itself because like now it makes Rachel or your assistant like even have more messages and then she's sending it back. And then you, it's like almost compounds on each other. Um, and something that you say in the book, Cal, is like people hate email. Like, like we just like, that's, I feel like any entrepreneur or any business owner that you talk to, like, that's like the least favorite part of your job is checking your inbox. Is it, do you think because of this hyperactive hive mind is like, because it feeds on itself and it's almost like this beast that you don't want to think about, but you have to, is, do you think that's why like people hate that part of their job so much? Yeah, there's a few parts to it. I mean, one is, yeah, it's, it's unrelenting and uh, it feels bad to do incomplete context shifts. We're much happier when we just work on something till we're done. That's very human. Mm-hmm. To be working on something, but then shift the context and come back to it, then shift the context and come back to it is a little bit like knowledge work, water torture. It just feels bad. Yeah. We don't like it. And then there's a the whole social aspect, which I get into. Um, we are not wired as social beings to be very comfortable with the idea that at every moment while we're doing something else, there's a request from other people we know piling up and we're not getting back to them. That really mm. stresses us out because we've evolved to take the maintenance of our one-on-one social connection seriously. Now, of course, we were evolved in a context where that was seven tribe members. But yeah. that deep part of our brain 
it can't really discern the difference between that and 600 emails in our email inbox. You know, there's no email when that part of our brain evolved. Uh, it can be just as stressful. So there's also this really stressful component to, oh my God, people need me and I'm not getting back to them. I talk about in the book experiments where they just directly measure people's stress levels. Wow. Uh, and they can co- they, they, they can uh, correspond this, correlate this to inbox checking by looking at the computer logs. <laughs> it's just, you know, you open up your inbox and... Right. There goes there goes the heart rate. Uh, they'll use thermal cameras. Like, there goes the heat bloom. Like, it's just stressful. Yeah. And to make it worse, we're really bad at communicating with text. It's very difficult to accurately convey emotional valence with just words. It's why if you go back and read letters from people, you know, 100 years ago, learned people who communicated mainly by letters, those letters are very long and they're mm-hmm. very florid. And it's not just because there's a different style back then. It's because they realized it might take two pages to just to directly convey exactly the emotional intent behind what I'm trying to say here. We just shoot off an email. We just shoot off a Slack. We just shoot off a text. We throw a bunch of emojis at it in hopes that works, right? Uh, So that's very frustrating as well. So all of those things add up and email makes us miserable. But at the same time, we have an affection for it because it's better than the fax machine. At the same time, we have an affection for it because that's how we actually work. So we have a hard time imagining, well, if I just turned it off tomorrow, I'd be screwed, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So we have this weird love-hate relationship. I absolutely hate this. Yeah. But also, I can't absolutely can't imagine what my life would be without it. And it puts right. us in this really weird uh, mental place with respect to this tool. Yeah. I've also noticed, I don't know if this is accurate, if this is just me, but I feel like in some of my like coaching students or, or just people I've talked to, I've noticed some entrepreneurs, maybe specifically diving into that niche, some entrepreneurs actually really love their emails and their inbox. And I've noticed it's because it makes them feel productive to like tackle it and to complete it and to be checking it and responding to an email every couple of minutes. So I think there's like in in all of that too, there's it does spike stress levels, but then you feel accomplished when you respond to all of those emails. But the reality is that most likely isn't the most productive thing you can do. And by kind of going back to like those, like the serotonin or the dopamine rush or whatever that you get from accomplishing that little task over and over and feeling productive is actually ruining getting anything of meaning or of depth or, you know, of momentum done in your work. So right. it's this the weird mix of like, we hate it, well, and, but we also love it. Yeah, but th- and that's a really good point you bring up. And especially for entrepreneurs, and, and this is something I also talk about in deep work, is it's important to step back if you're in that mode. And remember mm-hmm. that ultimately the marketplace is very competitive, right? Uh, it's easy to get people to say, good work, I like this idea. It's very hard to get people to give you money, right? Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to get people <laughs> to give you money. You have to be doing something rare and valuable in order to get a substantial amount of money back in return. And so the question to always ask yourself is, is what I'm doing right now something that's rare and valuable? Is it applying a hard-won skill in a high-value way? And if what you're doing is answering emails, then no. right? No yeah. one ever built an empire based on their email response times. No one ever built mm-hmm. an empire because they were on Slack once every two minutes. No one ever built an empire because of you know how often, how quick they were to check on social media and, and click like or do a favorite, right? People create empires out of building things that are rare and valuable, building up skills and then applying them in ways that have demonstrable value. So I really love using that competitive marketplace filter. If you've done email all day, that means most of your day you have done something that you know an untrained 21-year-old could do as well. It's just moving, answering questions, moving information back and forth. That's a lot of time you could have been building a skill or applying the skill to create something valuable. And ultimately, that's all the market cares about. Again, no one's going to come in and say, congratulations, we just got the report from Gmail. You did 5,000 emails <laughs> this week. Here's $20,000, right? It just never happens, right? right. Uh, so it's a, it's a seductive thing because honestly, developing skills and applying them at a high level is very difficult. There's, uh, it's stressful. It, it can be, it, there's fear of failure. Um, you're putting yourself out there. There's a lot of, complexities to it. And it feels nicer, as you say, to be like, uh, I'm doing stuff. I mean, I'm churning mm-hmm. and I'm jumping on calls and doing coffees and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But again, it doesn't move the needle, right? That's why in deep work, I call that shallow work. I mean, it's not like you can get rid of shallow work. I mean, you have to answer the client's question. You, yeah. your, your internet's not working. You have to wait to hear back from customer support. But it's not going to move the needle. It's not going to grow your business. It's not going to get you promoted that's going to be the long, deep stuff where you're actually trying to develop skills and apply them in demonstrably valuable ways. Okay, well, I would love to, we, we've kind of, I feel like, convinced our listeners <laughs> that the hyperactive hive mind is bad. Um, and so I can imagine 
the next natural question is like, okay, well then what, what, how do I change? What do I do differently? How can I start implementing just processes in my business that I don't have to be a slave to the hyperactive hive mind? Is there, I know you give solutions in your book. Could you talk about a few of them here? Yeah. Well, so here's the big picture idea. Uh, It's process-oriented thinking. And this is is both really relevant, but also really uh, easily actionable if you're an entrepreneur. So I'm glad to be talking um, to your particular audience. I know you have a lot of entrepreneurs. Oh, and if you're a solopreneur, then this stuff, you really have a lot of options here, right? I mean, what I'm about to tell you, this is the hardest if you are a cog in a giant machine. You know, I am in a mm-hmm. fifty thousand person company, and I'm on a team of thirty, and have six bosses. It, 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 it that's a much more difficult situation. But if you're doing your own thing, you have a lot of flexibility. It's all about process engineering. Uh, our job is not to answer email. Our job is actually we have these various, I'll call them processes, that we come back to again and again, and they're all necessary for creating value in our business. We don't often name them, we don't often write them down, but we should. And one way to identify them is to actually just take a typical day and look at every email you answer that day. And for every email, ask yourself the question, what's the underlying process this email is helping to move along? Like, oh, this mm-hmm. is the answer client question process. This is the um, vet perspective customer process is what this is back and forth. This is the scheduling. I'm a photographer. This is the like scheduling the uh, scheduling appointments with a new client process, right? Just every email, just say, what is this actually a part of? What thing do I do again and again that this email is helping to advance? You get a whole list. And most people, if you're an entrepreneur, there's seven to 17. I mean, I'm kind of making these numbers up, but like roughly (laughs) in that ballpark, right? Right. Uh, Seven to 17 of these processes. Wow. Then you go through and say, how do I actually implement these processes, right? What are the rules or systems I use to implement these processes? For most people, in most cases, they're just defaulting to the hyperactive hive mind. How do I set up Client appointments, we just rock and roll an email. How do I answer client questions? We just rock and roll an email. How do I, you know, get the new marketing campaigns together? I just kind of go back and forth with my partner and our web designer, and we kind of figure it out on email, right? Uh, it's usually the hyperactive hive mind is the default. What I suggest is going process by process and saying, what alternative rules or systems can we put in place here that would, and here's the key metric, reduce unscheduled messaging? Not what's going to make this the fastest, not what's going to be the most convenient, not what is, and this is key, uh, not what is going to guarantee that nothing bad ever happens, that never annoy anyone or nothing's ever missed. That's not the goal. How do I minimize unscheduled messages? And you put in place rules and systems for these processes one by one that minimize, and I'll give you some examples in a second, but this is the high-level picture. As you engineer these processes to get away unscheduled messages, the pressure in your inbox just dissipates. And your inbox becomes like the old-fashioned mailbox from 25 years ago. Oh, yeah, I check it once a day because like my accountant's going to send me an invoice in there and I might get a, a newsletter I like to read. But it's not where my work is mainly happening. Yeah. And, and that's where I want people to get. So, And then the rest of the book is all about, okay, how do you do this process reengineering? Because it's going to mm-hmm. differ process by process, person by person. I have a lot of ideas and principles to help do that. But I just wanted to start with that foundational idea. Yeah. You're a factory that builds a bunch of stuff And you got to get each of these assembly lines working really efficiently uh, if you want your company to grow. If you are loving what you're hearing on today's episode, then we wanted to share something else you might love, The Heart Shop. It's our digital resource online shop for creative entrepreneurs. The Heart Shop is your one-stop shop for all of our online courses, luxury website templates, PDF guides, social media graphic templates, and illustrations. If you've been at your wit's end with your website design and you don't know where the heck to create a high-quality pricing or welcome guide to give your clients an incredible branded first impression, ooh, we got you. (laughs) We created The Heart Shop to serve you with the best tools and resources you need to successfully run your business. Just head to theheartuniversity.com forward slash shop and start browsing the goods. That's theheartuniversity.com forward slash shop and we'll see you there. Did you know that the number one type of post that does the best on the gram is photos of yourself? And it's not just Instagram. Sharing photos of you on social media, your blog, your website, et cetera, instantly creates connection with your ideal client. And if you own a business or market products or services online, you need to have regular content photos of yourself, period. But I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and guess that you struggle with sharing photos of yourself, right? You know you probably should be posting yourself more, but you struggle feeling confident in doing that because you don't know the first thing about how to take content photos of yourself. Ones that leave you feeling confident and help your ideal client relate and connect with you. 
if you've been nodding your head to all of that, like, yup, Lindsay, Evie, that's me. I need help. Then we have the solution to your problem. And that's introducing the content photo miner. Yes. In this mini course, we take you step-by-step through conceptualizing, planning, and styling a content photo shoot all the way to the final product of posing and actually taking those photos of yourself for your brand and your business. We teach you how to plan style outfits, scout locations, get good light and color match for your outfits, how to do self-portraits of yourself with a tripod, and posing tips to know in order to get content photos that feel authentic to who you are and connect with your audience. Now to grab this mini course, go to theheartuniversity.com forward slash content dash minor. If you've been holding off on sharing you with your audience because you just don't know how to get started, we got you covered. One more time, that's theheartuniversity.com forward slash content dash minor. Okay, so Cal, can you give us then some, maybe like a, a tangible takeaway or some some examples, some analogies, some something where people can kind of sink their teeth into this idea of how to re-engineer that process in their own business, especially for the entrepreneurs or the solopreneurs listening to this today. Yeah, let me, let me give a few concrete examples of general types of solutions we see when people are re-engineering these processes. Sometimes it's a simple technological fix. Not always, but sometimes it is. So let's, let's say, for example, I you know, used a photographer case study. Uh, I have to set up meetings with clients or something like this. And we, we kind of go back and forth to try to find time. So you say, okay, how can I minimize unscheduled messages? There you might be able to just throw technology at it. Let's use Acuity. Let's use X.ai. Let's use Calendly. Um, but you use, you know, when scheduling your podcast, a, a way for me just to say in one message, mm-hmm. I know you're busy, so I have all of my available times in here. You know, at your leisure, choose the one that works best for you. It gets booked if you're using something like Calendly or, or, or Acuity or something like this, you can also have some intake that happens there. You get all the information you need from the person. It all goes into the system, all without back and forth messaging. So sometimes you can just throw a tool that does exactly what you want, which is minimize that messaging. Sometimes what you're doing is automation. So uh, this is my term for if there's something that happens again and again where the steps are always the same. It's A, then B, then C, then D, right? So like podcast episode production. You know, it, it goes to the editor, they do this, we, we give comments, we show notes, it gets posted here, this gets sent out, whatever, right? It's the same things that happen every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those instances, I talk about how you can, you can set up these processes so no one has to send each other unscheduled messages for this process to unfold. Like one of the examples I give, they actually used a shared spreadsheet. There's an entry for, uh, these were videos, but similar thing. There's an entry for the episode. One of the cells is the status. They use Dropbox to hold files. So like when you're ready to change the status, you shift the status in the spreadsheet. Then the next designer sees that. Now they know they can grab it. Uh, And then when they're done, they shift the status and whatever, right? You can set up an automated process so that no one has to send a message that's received in an inbox to move things along. Uh, And then sometimes you're you're coming up with sort of one-off collaboration systems that are maybe use transparent task storage and well-scheduled synchronous communication to get rid of just a lot of back and forth. And so I give a lot of examples, for example, of teams that'll use something like Trello or Flow, uh, one of these type of tools where who's working on what all shows up on a card, on a shared task board, all the information is attached to these cards. Everything you need for the project is right there. They have set times that everyone meets and does these highly structured status meetings. What happened to the thing you were working on? What are you going to work on next? What do you need from the team to get that done? Great, let's update the board to reflect that. Go. We'll talk again mm-hmm. when we get to the next one of these meetings, right? All of these are examples of process reengineering that gets you away from the hive mind and therefore away from a lot of unscheduled messages. I love that because it's it's so, I mean, it feels like we should have thought of that, but I feel like it, because by nature, people's default is what is easiest, which is easiest in the moment is just sending off an email. Um, and as you were talking, I even thought like our podcast process, our podcast manager knows when we record, but usually every single time we get off an uh, interview like this one, we'll send her a Slack that's like, hey, Cal's audio and intro is in Zencaster. But like, she knows that. And it's just like, I'm just like, even hearing you talk, I'm like, I'm thinking of the things that like, even we can change in our business that is redundant or she just knows it or like we can set up a process and a workflow to automate that system. So that's so good, Cal. Yeah. Oh, and and, and there's, but just to say quickly, it's often more of a pain up front. Right. But long run, it saves a lot of cognitive energy. And it's all about, do I have to keep checking 
like an inbox waiting mm-hmm. for a message to come back or not. Almost any amount of upfront annoyance is going to be worth it from a cognitive standpoint to avoid, I got to just keep checking the Slack because you know I'm yeah. waiting to hear back from the designer and I don't know what's going on here. I mean, that has such a big impact on your ability to think and your mood that almost any amount of annoyance with these processes is worth it. Uh, and I often yeah. push the idea that, you know, work by definition is the resistance, you know, you're applying resistance against force. I mean, it, it is by definition hard. Uh, convenience should not be the metric. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the metric should be effectiveness. Like, is this actually yeah. making the best use of our brain? So, um, so yeah, that, it's, it's having this stuff worked out so you're not always checking the channels is, it's night and day to how it feels to be running your business. Yeah, I love that. Cal, would you be willing to to talk about Within this, we're discussing, you know, how to minimize like emailing and that back and forth communication. But I also feel that I see a lot of stuff going around uh, like memes or, you know, TikToks or just jokes about how, you know, when you're in a meeting that could have been an email or something like that. And it's almost this joke where I feel like as a, a working, you know, society, our derision has almost aimed at meetings instead of emails, like we favor emails for communication. But what I'm hearing you saying, and from what I know of like the books that I've read of yours, is that it's actually almost the opposite where meetings can be the better form of communication. But I also know there's like boundaries with that. So do you want to maybe like touch on meetings versus emails and how to pull away from the hyperactive hive fly, hive wow, hive mind workflow, cannot speak today, um, without like <laughs> flipping over too harshly into just having unnecessary meetings where the meetings almost replace the emails. Right. Well, I mean, I think the right meme should be, this could have been a process, uh, is what <laughs> I would actually send around. Because here's what's happening with meetings, and it's connected to the hive mind, so it's a good question, is you know a lot of people are not, they're not super organized, just internally how they keep track of what's going on, et cetera. So when something comes on their plate, all right, here's something I'm partially responsible for. Uh, progress has to be made. They get a little bit nervous and say, I, you know, look, I'm not very good at, I'm not going to keep track of this and make sure I come back to it and make progress. That makes me nervous. But here's something I do. If there's a meeting on my calendar, I go to it. Like, mm-hmm. that's something I trust myself to do. So, oh, I got an idea. Here's what I'll do. I'll set up a recurring Zoom about this. Yeah. And now I get some cognitive relief that, okay, it's on my calendar. I look at my calendar every day. When that shows up, I will go to that meeting. So this thing will have progress made. And I call it meetings as a proxy for productivity. This, of course, doesn't scale either. It's why during the remote work aspects of the pandemic, Zoom basically just took over people's whole life. Because mm-hmm. once we had no way of, of uh, there's no social cost to setting up meetings, right? There's much more of a social cost if, no, I'm making you you people get up and come into this room, and we're going to see each other, right? There's more of a cost there. That The, the friction's much lower with Zoom. It's like, oh, I can just click these things, and people sort of show up on this abstract screen. We got this explosion of meetings as a proxy for productivity, and that just takes away all your time as well. This is going to happen in a hyperactive hive mind shop because, again, if everything's just informal, we work things out on the fly. There's no systems or processes for how things get executed. Then, yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's have a meeting so I don't have to worry about this, right? But once you start moving away from the hive mind, well, this is our, our repeated way we deal with client questions. This is our repeated way we brainstorm and produce new marketing campaigns or whatever. You don't have the same issue of, I'm worried that I don't know how to do this. I'm worried progress won't get made. Let's just set up a meeting. You don't have that issue because you already have a process for how that work happens. Now, that process is going to maybe include meetings because synchronous conversation can be very efficient. But meetings that are a part of a process are intentional and highly structured. I mean, if you go and look at computer programmers that use an agile methodology like Scrum or Kanban, yeah, they have these daily stand-up status meetings, but they're 10 minutes long. And man, they're militant. All right, what'd you do mm-hmm. yesterday? How did it go? What are you working on today? Who, what do you need to get that done? Go, right? In fact, if you go more than 15 minutes, it's considered a failure with these meetings, right? They've really thought through, you know, what's the most effective <laughs> way to coordinate, right? So meetings as part of an intentional process can often be fantastic. Meetings in the absence of those processes are just a proxy for productivity. And the reason why people say this would rather be an email is because there's nothing more frustrating than having to sit there for 90 minutes again and again saying, what is going on here? Like, we're not even talking about anything. This is just people bloviating and uh, secretly trying to check their email, ironically, like while the meeting's going <laughs> on. So I think it's a really good point. So meetings as a proxy of productivity uh, is killer. Those could be a process instead. So by fixing the email problem, you fix the meeting problem as well. Mm, So good. I'm thinking of 
our listeners who are like, okay, I, I'm on board with you, Cal. I get it. I'm currently operating in the hyperactive hive mind workflow and I want to get out. I want to start my processes, but I don't even know the first place to start. Like for somebody, I guess my question is what advice do you have for somebody, maybe a solopreneur or maybe an entrepreneur that has like one or two people on their team? How would you what would be your advice to first start implementing processes in their business? Like, is there a type of segment of their business that you suggest starting with? Or like, how do you just like tangible step-by-step tips to like start this? Yeah, well, so list everything out first. So go take a day or two, let your inbox guide you, let your Slack guide you. What are all the different repeated processes to make up my business? I'm a factory that builds a lot of things. What are those things? All right, then start small. It's all about getting the taste for this. Often the best process to to optimize first because it's the easiest but gives you a big bang is meeting scheduling. If you don't already use a tool like Calendly to make it real easy to set up meetings, do that one first because it's pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, I get this tool, I set it up, you know, it's it's not so hard. Uh, But it has a surprisingly big upside. People don't realize, for example, the cognitive cost of setting up meetings via email because if you really think about it, you know, let's say we need to set up a meeting and we have five back and forth emails, right? Uh, can you do it Tuesday? Not really. How about Wednesday? Yeah. How about noon? No, I'm not busy at noon. Can you do it in the afternoon? Let's say it's five back and forth emails. Because you kind of need to get this meeting on the books, you want to make sure that you're at that ping pong table when the ball comes across, right? Because like, if we have five back and forth emails, we need this meeting scheduled today, so I can't delay too long. So I'm going to keep checking my inbox uh, to make sure that I catch it when the ball comes back so I can knock it back. So those five emails might generate 30 email checks uh, because you're checking me five times for email, right? So now you've you've changed your context 30 times in a day just to get that meeting set up. And let's say you do 10 meetings a week. You've just introduced 300 concentration-busting, brain-fatiguing context shifts to get those meetings set up. Whereas if you had a tool like Calendly, suddenly those 300 context shifts go away, right? And it's 10. It's like just the first message you send out to, to set up the meeting. So I often suggest start there because you get... People are often surprised by how good they feel after they use those tools because they've been underestimating the pain mm-hmm. meeting setup cost. And then just go and you know take your time at first. All right, this week, what about this process? Let's think that through, right? Let's try that, right? And you just go process by process. Uh, be easy on yourself. It's hard to get this right. Be flexible. If something doesn't work, admit that and change it. You know, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. This is especially a problem with more like guys and techy geeky guys. They get obsessive about, I'm going to get the like, perfect system here. I'm going to use Airtable. I'm going to hook Airtable up uh, with Zapier so that it automatically connects when I press this button and a laser shoots out into my eye. And you know, you know how it gets, right? And then you fast forward three months later and they've lost all their clients because they've been doing online courses on how to automate their email text expander macro. So don't do that. Right? Don't be like those guys, right? Um, flexible, easy, but just let me just bring down these messages as much as I can. And, you just, and then you're just going. One after another, one after another. Mm. That's so I think good. that's so good. Even to, I don't think a lot of people write down what they do. Mm-hmm. Like, especially solopreneurs who are in the thick of it and they're they're doing all the things. I think that's just such good advice to like step back and literally write down every single thing you do for a client, for marketing, for HR. I mean, maybe this sounds fancy if you're just a solopreneur, but like if you're wanting to hire someone, like just, I think that's so good just to like sit down and really think out the processes to actually, or think out the steps of what you do to then turn them into processes. Yeah. Oh, and let me just say real quickly, when you write everything down, you also tend to realize 30% of those things you probably don't need to be doing. Yeah. And that's a huge win as well. I mean, that's the best automation of all is zero messages required because you're like, I don't really want to do that anymore. Like, okay, I'm just getting rid of that, uh, which is a huge benefit too. Would you recommend almost tracking your time. Because I think especially for creative entrepreneurs who are using social media marketing, like I find because social media is such a thing that you can so easily do for fun, but then also you're doing it for your business. So many times like I'll be working and if I'm not careful, I'll start like posting on Instagram and then all of a sudden I'm just scrolling and liking and it has nothing to do with what my business was. But like, would you recommend time tracking like everything that you do for that reason? Or I don't know, would you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm an advocate of what I call time block planning, where you actually look at your hours for the day, 
You say, okay, when do I have meetings and appointments? And you block those out and say, what do I want to do with the hours that remain? So you give every minute a job. This 30 minutes, I'm doing you know, my Instagram post for my business. This hour, I'm working on this report. Uh, this 30 minutes, I'm doing a bunch of emails, whatever. You actually give your time a job. You don't do what I call instead the list reactive method where you just sort of, what do I feel like doing next? What's in my inbox? What do I want to make? And you, and you try to figure it out on the fly. So I, I do agree, give everything every minute a job in advance. I, I even sell a planner that my, my reader, it's called a time block planner. So I actually have a physical planner that my, my readers buy. To, it, it's like pre-formatted to, with a wow. ribbon to do this type of stuff uh, because it's such a, it, was such a, it turned out to be such a popular idea. But also if you're involved in social media marketing, I mean, look, I, I advocate having like a, an incredibly strong firewall between personal and work, even though I know they completely intersect, right? Because you might have a profile about yourself, an account about yourself that is, growing your business. But I talked about this some in digital minimalism. Treat social media like a professional, right? If you're a professional, if you're marketing with it, you're a professional, right? And mm-hmm. that's different than consuming social media. When you're consuming yeah. social media, you're falling into the game of the algorithmic traps that have been set. When you're on TikTok, you're falling into the trap that they, they, they're they literally titrating out exactly how many likes or views you're getting just to try to keep you like, oh, you're, we're losing your interest. Let's give you a big random burst of views on this one so that you'll be like, whoa, and then you'll be back more often. Like, don't fall into their attention traps. You know, I talk about in that last book about how, especially people who work for big brands and manage their social media brands, their phone is not involved. It's on their desktop. They're usually using pretty sophisticated software on top of the social media platforms to help schedule and keep track of the impact of what they're doing. It's a really rigorous schedule type thing. Uh, I remember talking to some Instagram influencers who realized, oh, Instagram's whole trick is the cameras on the phone so that you'll have to have it on your phone and then you always have access. And he was in the fitness influencer space. He started just taking the photos separately, not on his phone, using a, uh, I think he was using even like a GoPro or something like this. It wasn't like it was a super fancy camera. And then they had these set times. He'd sit down with his team. They'd take the photos off there. They'd construct the Instagram post. They'd put up the post uh, because he didn't want the app on his phone. So it would follow him everywhere and wow. he'd feel like he'd, he'd use it. So that's a whole other interesting world. Social media is so complicated because we have personal engagement and business engagement. And I wrote a whole book about the personal engagement and what to do about that. And so like you have to put up this really heavy wall between that and your business engagement. And then you got to just make the business engagement boring seems to be the best practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a schedule. Let's grab these photos. It's time to post them. We, it happens in a half hour. We do it at these times. I'm doing it on a desktop. Maybe someone is doing it for me. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. so it, it, anyway, that's, that's a whole other interesting world. How do you take advantage of what those platforms offer yeah. without those platforms taking advantage of you? It's a really tricky tightrope to get right sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially tricky because like you were saying, Cal, those, those apps have been designed to be addictive, to keep us on there to, you know, it's the, the psychology behind social media, especially is mind boggling of how almost like mentally manipulative those apps are. And if we're aware of that as especially business owners or, you know, creative brands who do have a lot of ourselves involved with our brands, a lot of our own faces, a lot of our own, you know, interaction and communication, realizing that and then being able to utilize, you know, eliminating the hyperactive hive mind workflow and you know, not just going on to answer a bunch of DMs, not just going on to, you know, scroll for a while and engage, like being very intentional with the process that we have social media within our business and turning it into a process versus just a a reflex reaction. And I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of entrepreneurs check social media the exact same way they would check their email every like six minutes or so. And so any like, mindset shift that you would utilize for emails would I think in my like from everything that we've talked about today I would also turn and apply to social media with just being very intentional to turn it into a process yeah. to minimize what I the damage I'm doing pretty much <laughs> and and it's it's this is it's an interesting topic because you know my my last book was on basically social media and this new book is on email and it's really worth discussing the ways that they're both similar and different because it's a really nuanced, interesting type of area because the the unwanted behavior is similar in both. I look at it too much. The mm-hmm. underlying causes are different. 
and it, that's what kind of makes it interesting. Why do I check my email too much? Well, because um, I used a hyperactive hive mind. That's where all of my collaboration is happening. So me checking it too much is because I actually need to check it. With this workflow I have in place, the only way to keep things moving in my business is to keep checking email, right? That's why I'm looking at it too much. Why am I looking at social media too much? That's more about, like we were talking about, attention engineering. Well, the mm-hmm. platforms make more money if I do. And they've been the, the, the apps have been built in such a way to actually uh, create a moderate behavioral addiction so that that I'm being manipulated into checking it too much. Uh, so there's two different causes. and uh, But that changes the, a little bit, it changes the solution. So for email, like, man, I have to replace the hyperactive hide mind with other processes so that there's I don't have to be in here to do my collaboration. Social media, it's both easier and harder. It's easier in the sense that like, oh, I can just, abstractly speaking, not look at it so much. Because it's, you know, I'm looking at it too much, not because this is where my business is actually happening, but just because it's been made right. very attractive. The hard part is that's hard to do because so much money has been put into making this really, really attractive to look at. And honestly, like the simplest thing people can do that use social media for their business is to have none of it on their phone. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are optimized to be very addictive on the phone. If you're using it on a browser on your desktop and you don't save the passwords, there's a little bit of friction. You got to look on the sticky <laughs> note and type that thing in. It doesn't stop you from doing any of your business posting, from doing your the the, the influencer post and 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 having yeah. DM sessions if that's part of how you engage with your audience. It doesn't stop you from doing any of it, but it does stop you from the knee jerk. Like, well, let me just look, mm. let me just glance, and and so. Yeah. I think that's the, it's both easier and harder with social media. It's easier because you, if you stop looking at social media today, uh, it's fine, right? It's not like yeah. this, whereas if you stopped using email today, it's a problem. But right. we don't really like email. We just have to get in there because that's where the work is happening. And man, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun to look at social media. So I think yeah. getting those subtleties of the different dynamics right is, is really helpful, helpful because yeah. then you realize like, oh, it feels like the same, but it's not the same. And uh, it's just fascinating dynamics. Wow. I feel like we could talk literally for hours. Like I'm just (laughs) fascinated with this conversation, uh, but I know we're reaching slowly to an hour. So we ask all of our guests this, Cal, and it's a big question, but it's really an interesting question because I like hearing different people's perspectives. But what is the biggest lesson that you've personally learned in business? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it probably goes back it probably goes back to that book I wrote in 2012 about, okay, how do people end up really loving their work? Mm-hmm. And it was this idea that ultimately, that book was called Be So Good They Can't Ignore You, or So Good They Can't Ignore You, but it was based off a Steve Martin quote that his advice his advice to aspiring entertainers was, be so good they can't ignore you, and then all the other good things will follow. That has become sort of a bedrock for me understanding the world of business. I mean, ultimately, you need to produce something too good to be ignored. Something that's rare and something that's valuable. And if you do that, everything else good comes from it. There's no shortcuts to that. And there's no amount of checking or posting or responding that can take the place of ultimately I'm producing something too good to be ignored. And you want to work backwards from that is how do I spend as much time as possible doing that mm-hmm. and make sure that the other things that also have to happen for my business to run don't get too much in the way of that. That was a real foundational idea for me that that was the foundation of all, not just success, but passion and meaning and impact in business. And it's something that's ever since I clarified that point in that book 10 years ago has played a big role in all the thinking I've done about the world of work. Mm, so good. I also, I've read that book and it's, it's so good. It's especially, especially good to stop thinking through like, oh, I just have to do what I'm passionate about. It's like, well, that doesn't always equal success. And it's so, so fascinating to just look through that perspective. And then what you just said was just, so good. So Cal, thank you for being on here today. You are amazing. For any of our listeners who are now as obsessed with you as Lindsay and I have been for several years, where can people read your books, learn from you, receive all of the information that you just dropped a tiny drop of in today's episode? Well, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, given our conversation, I don't have any social media accounts, (laughs) but I do have a website, calnewport.com where I write about these things. I've been writing about these things weekly since 2007. And so there's a blog there and an email list. I also have a podcast called Deep Questions, where I just take questions from my listeners and readers about these type of issues, and we just get into it. You know, And, and some of them are phoning questions, and some of them are written questions. And it's a lot of fun, because we cover a lot of territory, from mm-hmm. I have this particular problem trying to reduce email about this client, to big, you know, what's the meaning of work and how do I build a deeper life? And we go all over the place and answer lots of questions. And, and so, so that Deep Questions podcast has been a lot of fun as well. That's so cool. Well, that's 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving us a little piece of your time today. I know the listeners will love it as much as we did. So thank you so much, Cal. And we just want to encourage everyone to go read uh, your new book, A World Without Email, and honestly, all of his others, Loki. But uh, we know that one just came out. So thank you so much for being here, Cal. It was an honor. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 